It's all right. If you can, please turn your Bibles to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. And again, I'm just thankful uh, for Pastor Joe for allowing me to have this opportunity um, to share the word with you guys. And he said that I wasn't a sojourner, but technically today I am a sojourner. <laughs> the idea of sojourner it connotes the idea of being in a place temporarily. It's kind of being in a place uh, temporarily as an alien or a foreigner uh, with this idea that you're going to head back. It's traveling. And I think it's also fitting because I'm talking about Psalm 15. In the very first verse of Psalm 15, the psalmist prays, O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent. And I just thought it was really fitting. I think if you have NAS, it's probably going to say, who may abide. But I'm reading out of the Legacy Standard, and to give props to Dr. Chow and Joe, I think they got it right, to sojourn into his tent. And like I said, it's a pleasure to be with you. And yes, just a little bit about me. I am in my last semester here at, um, at the Master Seminary. Uh, I was just recently married to my lovely wife, Melinda, seven months ago. And so we're just really praying about just what the Lord would have for, have for us. But it just seems that the Lord will have us here a little bit longer. But I also wanted to let you guys know that I'm also encouraged by this particular group. There was a time, I actually, I work here for Grace Community Church, and I was um, having an oversight um, doing memorials, basically working with uh, members who have passed on to glory, um, trying to coordinate things. And I remember a young lady by the name of Abigail who had passed away. And I remember just the rallying of so many of you who came alongside her in a family that was unbelieving to communicate the gospel in order to try to coordinate for that um, particular memorial. So I am encouraged by you. And so it is such a a pleasure and such an honor to be able to share God's word with you. Again, one of the major topics here is being a sojourner in the text. And again, when we think about sojourner, we we think about how life here on earth, it's temporary. We know that there's so much more that we have to look forward to. We know that there is this glory, heaven, the place where God dwells. And so we look forward to that. We understand that. And that's the place that we want to be as our aim, our goal to be in the very presence of God. And this is what the psalmist is asking about, to be in the very presence of God. You see, because the Bible tells us that in God is life. He is the fountain of life, it says in Psalm 36, 9. And in his light, we see light. And because we are in Christ and in him, we have life. We can experience life to the fullest. That is the God we serve. But the thing about understanding, or should I say, what we have to understand about God is that there is a cost to get in that place. Just as uh, you go to Costco, you can't just experience all the things and all the privileges of Costco unless you're a member. You cannot experience the blessings of Costco and getting free samples of food. Well, at least not during COVID, but I think it's resuming now. But the idea that you can purchase bulk items for a reasonable price and to get gas that's cheaper Yes, gas that is cheaper (laughs) than a lot of other places. But the thing is, is that you have to be a member. And to be a member, there's a cost. Similar 
to being in the presence of God, there's a cost, and the cost is holiness. You see, in this text, the psalmist, he encouraged us to ask one of the most important questions that we can ever ask. Essentially, he is asking this, God, who is able to enter into your presence and remain in your presence? And we ask this question that way that we may know the righteous requirements, but also that we would examine ourselves in light of that truth. You see, there's a cost. And that cost is holiness. Again, the psalmist, he asks a very important question. And let me go ahead. I'm just going to read the text, Psalm 15. And it reads, O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt. And does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Let me open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we just come before you, Lord, recognizing God that you are holy. Recognizing, God, that our time here on earth, it's limited. We know that there's so much ahead of us, Lord. And I pray, Father, that we would be encouraged by your truth. But, Lord, I pray that the disposition of our heart would be bowed down to you, knowing, God, that you are holy, something completely other. Help me, God, in order to dispense and to communicate your truth. And may your people be encouraged, God. May Christ be honored, and may you get all glory. We give you thanks in your name. Amen. Again, right here in verse 1, the psalmist prays, O Yahweh, who may dwell or who may sojourn in your tent, and who may dwell on your holy mountain. He starts off with a question. But the answer to that question essentially is, I want to get to this place. I want to get to this location, but it's not just any location. It's being in the very presence of God. So if we look at verse 1, what I want you to see is that this is a holy destination, a holy destination destination. And the psalmist prays, O Yahweh. And we know about Yahweh. It is the covenant-keeping God. It is the God who had given a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was the children of Israel and David who experienced this covenant that God will bless them. And it wasn't predicated on anything that they did. It wasn't their faithfulness, though he was faithful to them to fulfill the very thing that God had called them to do. 
But I also want you to understand is that there's also an inquirer. Now, the psalmist or the writer of this particular psalm is credited to be David, the king. And if we know anything about David, we know that David was the one that was promised long ago in Genesis chapter 49 when God said that the scepter will not depart from Judah. And later on, we see David is that one who was given this covenant promise, the Davidic covenant. It says in 2 Samuel 8 through 16 that the scepter shall not depart. And he talks about his seed is going to be blessed forever. There's going to be that kingly line that's going to continue on. God, that covenant-keeping God, promised David, made a covenant with David. David was an inquirer. What you also got to understand is that he's also a member of the community. But yet he is here and he's inquiring. God, Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Are you an inquirer? Are you seeking God? Are you just satisfied to be a member and not asking this question and really meditating on just the holiness and the splendor and the majesty of who God is? That's David. And he goes on and he says, oh, Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? One commentary suggests that for him to sojourn in a tent or to dwell in the very presence on his holy mountain, it speaks of a homecoming. Almost like a man coming to the end of his life and going into the very presence of God. But we got to be mindful here. What's going on is that he's talking about the tent of God. And if you know anything about Old Testament history, we know that the tabernacle has not been built yet because David's son Solomon is going to build this temple where they are to worship and give praise to God. But yet there was the tent that was still elevated on Jerusalem. It was, it was David in 2 Samuel chapter 6 who brings the ark of God back to the people of God. He brings it to Jerusalem a place where worship was going to happen, the very presence of God. He says it is on a holy mountain, or some of your Bibles might say holy hill. It was elevated. If you guys can recall Psalms chapters 120 through 134, they have what they call the Psalms of Ascent. And the men were to go three times a year to offer these sacrifices to give praise and honor and commemoration of what God has done. They were to go up. And as they went up, they would sing these psalms to give praise and honor to God. Remembering who God was. When we think about this text, this very first verse, we recognize the holiness of God. The splendor and the majesty of just who he is. Let me give you an example. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. And I just want you to recognize just how glorious and holy God is. Exodus chapter 19, I'm going to look at verses 18 through 25. Now it says, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire. 
And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then Yahweh spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to see, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to Yahweh set themselves apart as holy, lest Yahweh break out against them. Verse 23. And Moses said to Yahweh, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, let set bounds about the mountain and set it apart as holy. Then Yahweh said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to Yahweh, lest, his, lest he, that is Yahweh, break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. Obviously, this is a different mountain, but again, I'm trying to illustrate the point that God is holy. In the first 12 or 18 um, chapters of Exodus, you see that Israel, they were in bondage in Egypt, and God delivers them. And now, verses 12, or chapters 12 through 18, they're traveling to a particular place, Mount Sinai, where God is going to reveal himself to them. He's going to make a manifestation so that way everyone is able to see the glory of God. And so now they're here at this mountain, and the people rightly fear because they see the thunder. They see the smoke. They see the very presence of God. And the disposition of the heart, it trembles before God. They're bowed down before God. Look at their response. Look at Exodus chapter 20. Look at verses 18 through 20. I'm going to read. And it says that all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And the people perceived it and they shook and stood at a distance Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may be with you so that you may not sin. When these Israelites come to the very presence of God, they are fearful. They are afraid. They are trembling because of the very presence of God. And this is what the psalmist is saying, Lord, who who is able to come into your presence? If anyone comes into your presence, they're going to die. You see, you and I, we are to have a disposition towards God to recognize that God is something completely other. He's not our homeboy, as some people would have on their T-shirt. No, he's God. He's holy. We can be like the children of Israel and Moses, and they say, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? If you were to look at Hannah when she's praying for a child, she says that there is no one holy like you, Lord. There is no rock like our God. She recognizes the holiness of God. We see another example of this, this manifestation with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And there's angels flying around and they're speaking to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The psalmist, when he sees the holiness of God, Lord, 
who was able to come into your presence? Who was able to come into this holy destination to come to you, God? You see, oil and water doesn't mix. Holiness and unholiness does not mix. And the great thing about God is God doesn't lower the standard. Again, this points to the standard of who he is. He doesn't lower the standard. And if you were in first service, it talked about Jesus and how he led captivity captive. He went up, (laughs) speaking figuratively in a sense, but he raises us up. That's what Christ does. So again, we see this holy destination. But let's go back to Psalm 15. But then if we, to, if we were to go, which we are, in verses 2 through 5, what we see is the holy demand. So we have one, the holy destination, but 2 through 5, we're going to see the holy demand. What are the requirements? What are the characteristics to get to this place where God dwells? In verse 2, he starts to give us a, a, a characteristic, a requirement. He says in verse 2, He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Now, I just want to point out another thing here in this text. Notice that this is some, this is the, these are the things that you do. In other words, you're being proactive. This is what you do. But I also want to point out there are three verbs here. It says walks or walk, work, and also speak. In the original, these are this this is a participle. It's like an, it works like an adjective, meaning that it is characteristic of a person. It's not just a one-off thing. It's not just that, for instance, I buy, I bought my wife uh, some flowers and I'm a, it makes me a romantic, right? <laughs> it's not that kind of deal. By the way, guys, it's Valentine's Day tomorrow. <laughs> But if I only do it once, that doesn't make it, I'm not characterized by it. You see, when you're looking at verse 2, when he says those who walk, you can think about it, those who are walking <laughs> blamelessly, those who are working righteousness, those who are speaking truth. This is a consistent thing that is going on in this person's life. They're characterized by this. And so he says, again, in verse 2, this person, he's walking blamelessly. Now, when you look at this word blameless, it's also the same word that is used for many of the animals that were used for a sacrifice unto God. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, which I know all of you do, a sacrifice was to be presented, it was to be unblemished. It was not to have any spot. And if it had a spot or if it had a blemish, guess what? It was not pleasing. It was not acceptable to God. Same with you. When you come before God, you are to be blameless, perfect. Very similar to, if you look in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it was Noah. He said that he was a blameless, or some of your translations say righteous man. Again, it's the same noun. It's the same word. If you were to look at um, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, God, he reveals himself to Abraham. He says, walk before me and be blameless. It is a command that has been given to all of us to be holy and perfect, unblemished before God, that we would be pleasing to him. But not only are you to be blameless, you are also 
to work what is right. It is, up, it is upright with the Lord. This is not a righteousness that is compared to one another. We are not the standard, but no, the righteousness, it has to be elevated to the very upright character of who God is. We see the third characteristic here is this person, he speaks the truth in his heart. This person doesn't entertain lies. He's characterized by meditating and speaking truth in his heart. He does what is right because he's being properly motivated by the very truth of the Lord's word. Psalm 145.18, that says, The Lord is near to all who called upon him, but to all who call upon him in truth. Jesus says that when we are to worship, we are to worship in spirit and worship in truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We have to understand that the only way that we can approach God is in truth. It has to be in his prescribed manner. Recall if, with me in Leviticus chapter 10, when you have the sons of Aaron and they offer a strange fire, something that was not prescribed by the Lord. And what happens? They die. And so you have Moses speaking to Aaron after his kids die. And he says, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. There is appropriate worship to God. We just can't come to God with what we think is right. It has to be in truth. But then we see three more characteristics here in verse 3. And now these are things that a person does not do. This person does not um, do these things. It's another way of thinking about this. This is an absence of evil. So in verse 2, we see the things that we do, positive traits. In verse 3, we see the negative traits. These are things that we do not do. And it says right here in verse 3, he does not slander with his tongue. In Leviticus 19.16, it says that you're not to go about your people as a slanderer or a talebearer. You're not to go around spreading lies to undermine the very character of your Brother Israelites, you're not to do that. Same with us. We are not to go around undermining uh, the reputation of people by speaking things that are falsely, not giving in to gossip. Nor does evil to his neighbor. That's the fifth thing. And then number six, it says, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. And the idea of reproaching someone is to shame them. And I think it's safe to assume that if we have any friend who is trying to shame us purposely, that's probably not a good friend in the first place. So again, these are the negative things a man does not do. That is, those who desire to get to this holy destination. But he goes on in verse 4. And we see the seventh characteristic, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. And when we think of reprobate, it's, this is an undisciplined man. This is a man who does not live in accordance to the truth of God's word. This is a man who lives by the desires of his own flesh. This is a man who has nothing to do with God, but yet the disposition towards someone like this is to despise him. Very similar to Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and the evil way in a perverse mouth. God says, I hate we're to think the very same thing that God thinks about sin and sinful men. 
Now, I also want to caution you because you're like, well, Ty just told me I can go out and despise people. That's not what I'm saying either. We also have to understand that we have been saved by grace. We were once reprobates. We were once undisciplined men by the word of God. And because of that, what do we do? We proclaim truth. There is a way of salvation that is going to be in Jesus Christ. Hoping that men would repent and put their faith and their hope in the Lord of glory. Yet, when we see people who live in a way that is contrary to the character of God, we are not going to be pleased with him. We're going to think about it the same way that God thinks about it. And then the eighth characteristic, it's almost a contrast of a despising, a reprobate. This person, he also, he honors those who fear Yahweh. And simply when we talk about honoring someone, it is to think well of them, to speak well of them. And we know, even if you were here last week, we celebrated and we honored our pastor for what? Being here for 53 years and preaching and proclaiming the gospel consistently and faithfully. But it's not just Pastor John. Because most of you, I'm assuming most of you are Christians, that you have put your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ, it is also to speak well of you. Because you have put your faith in Christ. You have your hope in Christ. And it's because you had a fear of God that led you to God to receive that mercy and that grace, that mercy that was given by Jesus Christ on the cross, that grace that you live by. It is to speak well of you. You see this just with Mark, who is going over to Texas to go to a different church. I'm going to speak well of him. And you see the faithfulness of a man who has been consistent in teaching FOF. And there are so many other saints throughout the church who are faithful, who do faithful service. We are to speak well of them. Again, this man, he honors those. But then we see a knife characteristic right here. It says that he swears to his own hurt and he does not change. This man, when he makes an oath, he's not double-minded. What he says he's going to do, he's going to do it. Now, obviously, we know that it's not good to swear or to vow. But yet, when it does happen, even to his own hurt, if it's going to cost him something later on, he's not double-minded and says, no, I I can't do it now. If it's going to hurt him, if it's going to cost him, he's going to willingly fulfill the very thing that he said he was going to do. This is what this man is like. But then we see two more characteristics in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 5. And it says he does not put out his money at interest. Now, the children of Israel, when you saw or when they had a brother that was in need, they were not to charge interest for that man. They were not to allow someone's poverty or someone's neediness to be a, a means of their own profit, their own gain. They're not to charge extra interest on them to profit off of them. In the last characteristic, it says, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. And to take a bribe is, you say you have two men who are going to court, but one man who has more money, he's going to pay the judge. He's going to bribe this man in order to get something that is favorable in his, um, in his place. Again, the godly, or should I say this holy demand, this is what it requires. In order to come into this place, 
of worship, that holy destination of God. And it says in the very last verse, the person who does these things, they will never be shaken. They will be planted. They will not be moved. They will be okay before the Lord. Now, I, th- I, I finished all five verses, so I think we can stop right now. We can pray and say, good luck. Go for it. <laughs> Is everybody doing everything that it says right here? So there's a problem. And we understand that we have fallen short of this. You see, it was said in one commentary I read, it was this idea that when a man was to go and worship before the Lord, he would basically count off everything that he did righteous before the Lord. He would basically say, I was blameless, check. I, was, I worked righteousness, check. I have spoken truth in my heart, check. You go all the way through the list, and once I check, it, check them all off, then I was allowed to go into the place to worship. Very works-based, right? Very works-based. And unfortunately, many times as Christians, we look at the laws of God, the morality of God, and I'm not saying that we do not look at those things. But sometimes we look at these things and we say, okay, read my Bible, check. <laughs> I haven't cursed at anybody today, check. <laughs> you fill in the blank. And so what happens is that it becomes like the spiritual checkoff list. I check all the boxes and I'm good. It's very similar. I, I'm in seminary and I know I, I recognize a bunch of faces in here. I know you're in seminary. What do we do at the very beginning of the semester? We look at our syllabus. What is the requirements? Okay, I need to read 2,000 pages a semester on top of all the other classes. We're going to do it. I need to what? I need to write a 30-page paper? Yes, okay. I know that I need to do it. What do we do? We break it down in blocks. For every week. And every week, I check it off, okay? I check it off. The reading assignment, I check it off. And then by the end of the semester, knowing that I fulfilled everything that I was supposed to do, I looked at the professor and I say, where's my A? At least that's what I think I should. <laughs> I've checked all the boxes, right? And so many times we treat God and his law the same way. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to look at, starting at verse 17. And this the story of the young rich ruler. And it says in verse 17, And as he, speaking of Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? I just want to pause right there because it's very similar to the very question that we saw earlier. Lord, who's able to come into your presence? He's basically, Lord, what what must I do in order to um, inherit eternal life? What must I do in order to come into your kingdom, God? Very similar to the question that we just saw. In verse 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? You guys know this. No one is good. No, no one is good except one God. And he says in verse 19, Jesus goes on. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, the young man says, teacher, 
I have kept all these things from my youth up. I checked them all off. I checked the box. I'm good to go. And I love this verse. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, it says, Jesus loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Verse 22. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples how hard it would be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And he goes on in verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, they were even more astonished, saying to him, then who can be saved? See, part of the culture was... If you were blessed with money and finances, you were a blessed man. If you're not going to go into the kingdom of God, who's worthy? Because obviously this rich man was favored by God. But Jesus is saying, no. And he goes on and he says, with man, it is impossible. You see, with you, when you look at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, when you look at Psalm 15, 2 through 5, it is impossible for you to enter into the kingdom of God. It is impossible to enter in the very presence of God. But then you'll ask me, okay, what am I supposed to do? Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And Paul, he's contrasting law and faith. I'm going to start in uh, chapter 3, verse 17. Paul says, and what I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to abolish the promise. For if the inheritance, get this, for if the inheritance is by law, it is no longer by promise, but God has granted it to Abraham through promise. Why the law then? Now, this answers this question. Why the law? It was added because of trespasses, having been ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. What is the purpose of the law? It tells you that your particular sin is sinful. It speaks of the holy standard of God. It teaches you what is wrong. But look at what he says here in verse, starting in verse 20. Now, a mediator is not for one person only, whereas God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if the law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by law. Hear what he's saying. Essentially, the law cannot impart life because you cannot fulfill it. But at verse 22, he says, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. If you were to look at Romans 1 through 3, what do you see Paul doing? His case is that both Jew and Greek, Gentile, they're all under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. That's you and I. Verse 23, but before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being shut up 
for the coming faith to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor unto Christ. When we look at the law and the burden of the law, it should point us to a Christ. We should fall down like, woe is me. How do I do this, God? And we cry out. But it makes us look to the Savior. But there's also more to even consider as well, because again, it's not just the outward conformity to the law. It's not just the outward obedience to the law. Jesus addresses this. Jesus, for instance, if you were to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26, Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, he records Jesus' words that he equates anger with murder. If you're angry with your brother, he equates it with murder. He even goes even so far to say if you lust or you look at a woman with lustful eyes, you've just as well committed adultery. You're already guilty. And if you look at Matthew chapter 6, he starts to confront pretentious worship, meaning that this worship should not be just a showy display of look how holy I am. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, you're not to do your good works before men. Otherwise, you have your reward. Um, from them by their praise and their adoration of you. He says, when you pray, you don't go out and pray and be like the hypocrites who pray out loud and think that they're going to be heard for their many words. Again, it points that our worship has to be from a place of sincerity, a sincere heart, and none of us apart from the of God has that new heart. We have to be given a new heart by God. This is why Jesus, he gives that, and we see the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 when he says, I will pour out my spirit, and I will give you a new heart. I will give you a heart of flesh, take out of you a heart of stone. I have to change your disposition, your whole makeup, in order for you to do the very thing that I'm asking of you. That's what God does. But then some would ask, well, do we just get rid of the law? No, we do not dismiss the law. We do not dismiss looking at Psalm 15. We don't just get rid of it. The Bible tells us that the law is holy. The commandment is holy. It's just and it's good. Again, it gives us a a compass. But when we look at the word of God, we can examine our lives in light of that truth and say, I'm not measuring up. And we ask for more grace in order to fulfill the very thing that God has asked of us. You have to understand that even when you look at Psalm 15, you're still responsible. You see, many times we look at this psalm and we celebrate, and rightly so, the the glory of who Christ is and what he has done. And we think to ourselves, well, Jesus did it. I don't have to. No, that's not the case. Turn your Bibles to 1 John. And look at... um, Chapter 2. And I just want to look at verses 3 and 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. We just can't live any old life and be pleasing to the Lord. It is the grace of God that has allowed us to, again, to do the very thing that God has asked of us. But we also have to understand, and please be certain of this, that it is God's grace that is working in us to do the very thing that God has asked of us. We have to remember Christ, and we have to allow the love of Christ to control us or compel us, as the Bible says. And it says that we judge thus, that if one die for all, then all died. 
This gets to the idea of union with Christ. What we have been studying in Ephesians chapter 4, many times it talks about how we are in Christ or in him. And our union with Christ means that when Jesus says that I did not come to destroy the law but to fulfill it, fulfill it because we're in him, we fulfilled it. But even more, we have to understand that if when we sin, when we fall, we confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us. But we also are to strive. Now, I've titled this message, Striving for the Holy. But again, this is not a striving out of mere man's ingenuity or resources or power. Rather, it is striving by the necessary energy that Christ supplies. For instance, if you were to look at Philippians 2, he says, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence solely, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work with his good pleasure. It's the same reason that Paul is able to say, but, the, but, but by the grace of God, I am who I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored. I, I strived more abundantly than all the other apostles, but it wasn't me. It was God's grace working in me and through me. St. Paul that says, not that I have already attained, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid in hold of me. Again, we do this by the strength and the power and the resources of God. But it's possible. Pastor John mentioned something which is very important as well. And he was pointing at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. And if you were to look at that text, you understand that I have to be infatuated. I have to love. I have to just cherish Christ. And I have to look and gaze upon his beauty and his glory. And again, it's not this mystical gazing upon him, but it's to really ponder what Jesus has done for you. It is to ponder, is to consider that Jesus has done so much and appreciate him so much. And the more that I look into Christ, the Bible says this, that with an unveiled face, we beholding his glory, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. It's our gaze upon him. And again, if you were to go back to Ephesians, Paul prays that the eyes of your heart may be illumined, that you may know exactly what Christ has done. The same power that rose Christ from the dead is the same power that indwells us. So we have everything necessary to live a life faithful to God. So when I talk about striving for the holy, this is something that we must do. But again, I'm not talking about man's resources. This is not, let me just pull myself up by my own bootstraps. No. Again, it's striving by the grace that God supplies. It's striving by the Holy Spirit. It's striving also, being rightly motivated, keeping our eyes focused on Christ. I'm going to close with reading Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't mind, turn there. I'm going to look at verse 18 through 24. And the author writes, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, 
and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which is such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. Sound familiar? Exodus 19, Exodus 20. And he goes on, for they could not bear what was being commanded. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was what appeared that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels to the festal gathering and assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. I hope that you are also an inquirer and that you will continue to strive for that holy place that God has set for us. Let's pray. Lord, I I just thank you for your truth. Father, I do pray for all of us, Lord God, that we would appreciate Christ so much more and what he has done. Lord, it's because he was blameless that we are blameless. It's because he fulfilled it and us being in him that we are counted as righteous before you. Yet, Lord, I do pray by the strength and the energy that you supply, God, that we would walk blameless, that we would work what is righteous, that we would speak truth in our heart. Father, I pray that we would do things that would bring honor and glory to our great King. Father, I do pray that you will bless the rest of this day, and we pray that we would just continue to honor you with our lives. We give you glory in your name. Amen.